How about if we start with a word of prayer? It's a good place. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for this day. We have gathered here today, Lord, to worship you. In the process of doing so, we open up your word and we learn of you. We see the things that you have designed for us. And, Lord, we're rather overwhelmed at your great love for us. How did we ever get to be such special people in your eyes? Your, your mercy, your grace, are really the only answers we know when we read in your word. So unworthy we are of your, your attention, much less your love. And now you call us your children. What a blessing that is to know too. So as your children, we come before you today. We're going to spend time in your word. We ask that you might help us in our study of your word to see again what you have done for us. Bring us again to a place where we worship you, for you are deserving of all of it. We thank you, Lord, for this. We pray your blessing now on our time as we sit at your feet. Teach us, Lord. Help us apply it where we need application today, that when we leave this room, we will be different people because we've spent time with you. Thank you for our time now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we are on part three of the topic, Heaven and the Believer. This is uh, an exciting topic, I know. The, the first week we walked through this aspect of our study, we uh, discussed the very fact that we will be leaving this earth, our departure is sure, all right? Some, we realize, and maybe a majority of us, for we don't know the future, uh, perhaps all of us will leave by death. Scripture tells us so. Some of us might leave by the rapture. Should that happen today? All of us in this room. Really? I hope so. If you're still sitting here, don't do that. All right. Uh, all of us, I hope, by the rapture. The second time we went into this, we, we looked at the, the fact that after the rapture, there are certain events uh, that the believer will participate in. For all church believers will participate in the rapture. Whether you're alive or not, you will. We know that from Scripture. But as we enter into heaven, there are certain events that are going to happen. And we started with the first event last week. What was it? I'll pull that sermon out again if you don't. The judgment of the believer. The judgment of the believer. That's what we discussed last week together. It will be the first event in heaven, I believe, for the entire church body. I don't believe it will take place individually as we go. So if uh, one of us should leave today, I don't think it's today that they start into that uh, Thing. I'm not positive on that, but it follows the, the picture of the Greek bima seat. Matter of fact, the, the New Testament actually uses the word bima seat, 2 Corinthians 5. And that uh, corresponds to the award ceremony at an Olympic event. That is not a private event. That is a public event. 
And I believe the whole church body needs to be there for this event. The judgment of the believers. Because we are all participants in the same thing. And as a result of that, the rewards are are, um, given in regard to the things that are done in the body. I believe it's a public ceremony. I believe, as I told you last week, it is not a judgment for sin. That's already dealt with at the cross, right? This is not to, to punish you. It is an award ceremony where he brings believers before him and he cites the things that they have done in his name. The works that were done in the body. Some works are good. They will be rewarded. Some works are worthless. They will all be evaluated. As I shared with you last week, Second Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That means good or worthless. He's not talking about evil. He's talking about worthless things. The good deeds will bring reward. The worthless deeds will be discarded. Matter of fact, they will be burned. 1 Corinthians 3. Let's go back over there. That's where we ended. Let's take one more look at this section. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 through 15. First Corinthians, Corinthians three, eleven through fifteen. Start in verse eleven. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now the, the picture is real simple. You see it, don't you? There are things that he will reward and things that he will discard. We sometimes look through that list on verse number 12 and we say, well, let's see, gold, silver, precious stones, those are the good things. Uh, wood, hay, and straw are the bad things because which holds up under fire? None of them do. Do they? Can you burn gold? There is a certain temperature you can reach where gold is consumed. Alright? You can work your whole life in the straw department. Do it to the glory of God. Somehow, that straw, done to the glory of God, withstands the judgment. Alright? Some people get their their expectations. Well, if I'm not working in gold, it's not going to be any good. The Lord sees the little things too, folks. You can't build a whole lot with straw. But you can build whatever it is to the glory of God, can't you? The simple point is, everything will be tested. The gold, too. The precious stones, too. The silver, too. The wood, yes. All those things will be tested. That's what he says. Some of these things will be rewarded. Some of these things will be consumed. Our goal. What is our goal in all these things? 
Our goal is to be pleasing on that day, right? We want to hear those words which we say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. When do you think those words are said? I think it comes as a result of this judgment. He sees what we have done. The reason why we serve Christ is to bring Him glory. To bring Him glory. Travel with me just for a minute. Colossians chapter 3. The other night at the uh, OBA graduation, the senior class had its verse. uh, Chapter 3, verse 23, which is a very familiar verse to us. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So do your work. Whatever that is, do it. Do it for the Lord, right? Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Right? It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's what this judgment is all about. Who have you served? Who have you served? This judgment is not so much what I am going to get out of it, but what glory will I bring my Lord in the things that I have done? That's what it's about. Paul longed for that day. I've shown you those verses already a couple weeks ago. He longed for that day so that he may have something to set before his Lord. That's what he served. That's who he served. And that's what he served him for. So I would suggest something to you that I think I could prove from Scripture. If our motives is on ourselves, the judgment day will not be what we expect it to be. If our motives are on ourselves. Uh, I put it this way. Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do some things. Now, James just said, uh-uh. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, think of those words, just for a minute. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So anything that I do, no matter how great the world might think it to be, anything done on my strength, for my own glory and not to his, will amount to a pile of ashes on that day. Doesn't matter what it is. If I serve by my own will, not by the will and work of God, for, you know, God does work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, but if my works reflect my own will, my own wisdom, If they're my own work, for my own pleasure, it doesn't matter how wonderful those works are. In that day, they will amount to a pile of ashes. If outwardly I serve with a smile on my face, but my attitude is selfish, prideful, resentful, reluctant, how many more words can we add to that list? If on the inside, my attitude is not in keeping with my service. Since the Lord can determine, can't he, what is done outwardly and what is thought inwardly, since he's able to do that, 
I do believe his judgments are not just based on the work itself, but on the attitude behind the work. For he can judge that thoroughly. He knows our motives. And his judgments will reveal what works will be rewarded and what will be burned up. Now, why do I do all that? I want it to make sense. I want us to understand that we really ought to be concerned about this judgment. Not in fear that our sins are going to be dealt with at that place. It's already been dealt with. But, the fear of, of, if you will, the fear, the concern that our works are done for the right purpose. For our Savior and not for ourselves. You see, we're given these lives and we're given these gifts for the Lord, to use for the Lord, right? When's our opportunity to do it? Now, here, when we get up there, they will be evaluated. So I'm greatly concerned about that. Matter of fact, this is what John said about it. Go with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. That's the epistle, way in the back. 1 John... Chapter 2, verse number 28. Look at these words. He says, Now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Ooh, what an ominous sounding ending. What is that? Well, let let me... uh, help you if, if this verse is emphasizing abiding in him and it speaks of his appearance and it speaks of the opportunity to either at that appearance have confidence or shame then it concerns me because I want the confidence what about you what is this it, it is possible that we may experience shame. The the Greek word is as if we have a disfigurement. We're afraid that it might be seen. How many verses do you think there are in Scripture that tell us that He shall wipe every tear from their eye? It's Old Testament. It's New Testament. Isaiah will find it for you. Revelation 21 verse 4 will find it for you. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eye. When? Some people say, Oh, the minute you die, it's done. No more tears, right? Well, let me tell you something. There has to be tears for Him to wipe them away. True? Alright. Every single Reference of that verse, he shall wipe every tear from their eye, speaks about it in the same context as death is also done away with and the new heavens are established. Do you know when I just put that? Not with the present heaven, with our future heaven. All of those verses that talk about him wiping the tears from our eyes will be in the new heaven. Uh Uh-oh, what did the pastor just do? I'm talking about the present heaven right now. I'm talking about what John says, that there will be some, perhaps, 
and he hopes not, but he says, some who might shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Scripture never said there won't be tears in the present heaven. I'll tell you what I'm getting at here. I just wonder if those tears might be the regret, the shame, the, the, the feeling of neglect, the lost opportunity, the fact that we could have served Him better, and it comes to re- we come to realize that. We could have abided in Him more, and we didn't. We could have relied more on His strength, and we didn't. We trusted our wisdom instead of His wisdom. We followed our will and not His will. We, we can do better, can't we? I wonder when we stand up in glory and we see all that He had said, I could do! And then we set our lives next to it. I wonder if maybe a tear or two might just have to develop there. Say, Lord, that's not what I wanted to do with that life. John says, abide in Him, and you will have confidence on that day. Isn't that what he just said? There's your answer. There's your key. Abide in Him. That's where you find His wisdom, His strength, and it all goes to His glory. We can all do much more, can't we? We can all do much for our Lord and in His power. That's the reward ceremony, you see? That's why as a pastor I have to tell you these things. So you know it. This is what we're aiming for. I want as a church, if, if we can stand together as a church, to have a huge pile of things we've done in His name and to His glory and by His power and presented to Him as a church body. Wouldn't that be great? We don't want to shrink back. We want to stand before Him in confidence. We, we want the Lord to be pleased. If I understand all this correctly, and I think I do, the rewards have three purposes. I'm going to give them to you as I, I think they are. Three purposes for rewards. Why, why this? I, I've got to get to the second event. All right, there are two events going on. This is the first one. But this one has a lot to do with the second one. So, let me tell you what these, these three purposes of the rewards would be. One, I believe they serve as that marker of the Lord's appreciation. He's saying thank you. He's rewarding you. We use the word recompense in 2 Corinthians 5. That's a good term. It's a positive term. It's not a negative term. He's going to recompense us on that day. And so, the Lord's promised that. He's not unaware. He's not even forgetful of the things you've done in serving Him, in loving His people, in serving His people. He knows these things. So, He will reward. He's promised that all over Scripture. So, that I do know is is that, and that's the one we primarily look at when we talk about rewards, don't we? Yes, that's, that's what we get for serving Him. All right. That's one thing. Second thing, I also believe that this reward ceremony has some sort of a reciprocation type of event going with it. Over in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, we have a scene in heaven. Now, I'll just tell you what I, what I think. All right, opinion time. 
Alright? Mark it down as my opinion. Alright? I believe if we're going chronologically through the book of Revelation, the church age we're part of is chapter 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 4, between the end of verse 22 of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, I believe the rapture fits there. Chapter 4, all the way through chapter 19, he describes the tribulation period. Church isn't a part of that. We're not here for that. So I believe the rapture will occur just before chapter number 4, if I'm setting this out in a chronological manner. As a result of that, what goes on in heaven in chapter 4 concerns me. Why? Because I'm going to be there. So will you. You want to know what's going on? Well, it starts these things. After these things, I looked, he says. Behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, and says, Come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. He who was sitting on, was sitting, was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. I've said this to some of you before, but I can't wait to see that green rainbow. I've got to see that green rainbow. That, that's, whenever you go to heaven, you look up there, who's that guy standing by the rainbow? That's me. I've got to see that thing. That's, that just sounds impressive to me. An emerald rainbow. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their head. And it goes and it starts to speak about uh, lightning and thunder and all these other things. And move down to verse number 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. My friends, if, if these groups are falling before the Lord and they're casting their crowns before Him, I think that we're probably going to participate in this one. I think we can't help that when we see His glory and His people start to praise Him. We're going to participate. And the likelihood of those cast, those crowns, like these guys are casting their crowns, the likelihood is that we're going to follow suit. Wouldn't you agree with that kind of an idea? And I'll tell you why I think it's a good idea that uh, we should do such a thing. Uh, he is worthy. He is worthy of it, isn't he? Who did we serve? Him. So why do we wear a crown? Because, well, what we did was we served for His glory, by His strength, by His wisdom, by His will. We did all these things. And so, who rightly does the reward belong to? It's His reward. We're just the instrument. He did the work. And so I think it's a, it's a right thing to do. He hands us the crown, and we say, No, no, Lord, this is your glory. We did it for you, and so we want to, we want to reciprocate that. We want to give that back. 
And I, I see that picture in there. There's a rather powerful section in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 1, and if you don't catch up to me, I'm going to read it. Uh, verse number 9 and through a handful of verses, verse 12. He's talking about what God has done and he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, this is what it's coming to, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's a lot of words, I know. But what it says is, all things, all things, will be summed up together to his glory. Us included. To his glory. The things we've done. To his glory. You see the picture? That day is coming. I can't wait to see it. When all things are summed up and brought before Him to His glory, our rewards too. We're supposed to be done to His glory, right? I can see them a part of this this reciprocation. Now, let me try to explain something I, I think is going on here. In no way do I want you to think that I'm minimizing the rewards by saying we're just going to cast them back at his feet anyway. I'm not doing that at all. I'm not speaking of disposable rewards. Alright? That's not what these are. They're incorruptible. Remember those words? Incorruptible crown? It's not disposable. They weren't just given to us as a mere token of the Lord's appreciation with him saying, well, I'm just going to get them back anyway. That's not part of what this is. Much of of our viewpoint, I have to confess, even my own, is that I see things from my own perspective. This is what I'd be thinking. Well, if I'm going to only enjoy that crown for a few minutes, what's the point? That's human, maybe. Why did I work my whole life in order to earn this if I'm just going to throw it back at him? Well, Let's take our view off ourselves for a minute. Put it on our Lord. What kind of perspective might He have in this? Like I said, if I understand this correctly, the rewards have three purposes. The first one is to show His appreciation. The second one is so that we have something to to reciprocate with. In acknowledging that it was through Him that it was accomplished anyway. The third one, from the Lord's perspective, the gifts and the works and the rewards have a greater purpose than what we're giving them. They have a greater purpose. Why do you think the Lord is so concerned about our lives down here? Why does he invest so much in his church? Why does he reward his church? Why does he shower his church with grace and with mercy and with gifts? Why does he give us this power to serve him down here? Why does he cause us to mature in his word? Why does he shape us? Why does he take us to heaven? 
I asked a dozen questions, almost. But I think there's one answer to all of these things. I think it's found in that second event that we will experience. The gifts, the rewards, all of them wrap up in this one picture. You ready for it? The second event is the marriage of the church to the Lord. You ready? This is fun. I can't think of a better picture of this. You're in Ephesians, maybe? Maybe you followed me there? Move to chapter 5. Chapter number 5. Now I'm going to walk through this very carefully with you, and I want you to understand what I'm doing when I speak on this, this passage. Starting in verse 22. There are commentaries and there are theological works out there. They're all very, very good. But there are some who hold the concept of the uh, church being the bride of Christ as some sort of an allegory. Just a, just a picture. Not, not a real thing. Not, not a literal thing. Uh, just a picture. All right? And so they work through this and they say, well, it's only used for this purpose. It's used for that purpose. It's kind of to, to illustrate the main point. Now, I believe from verse 22 to verse 33, the main point is Christ and the church. That serves as the guide to help us in a human marriage relationship. I'll start backwards. Paul's going to speak a lot about Christ in the church, and he says in verse 32, This mystery is great, but I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Just so you see that first before we say anything else. I don't think it's an allegory. I think it's a real thing. And I'll show you why in just a minute. But walk through what Christ does for his church. Take out the human side for a minute. Just for a minute. Many times when we go through verse 22 on, we talk about wives and their job. We talk about husbands and their job. And we go through that, and all of us come away feeling very uncomfortable. And thinking, boy, i got a lot of work to do, right? Now, every single time he references one of these people, the wives or the husbands, he says, now you get an idea of how Christ thinks of his church. That's the main picture. Our marriages are just supposed to reflect that. His church doesn't reflect us, does it? We reflect him. That's the point. Now, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Watch this, this is key. Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. Mark that. But the church is subject to Christ. So the wives ought to be subject to their own husband in every way. Notice who is bringing the application from the main point. The main point is Christ and his church. The wives apply that on their own relationship to their husbands. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You see that again? He doesn't say, Christ will love the church as a husband loves his wife. <laughs> Good thing. Doesn't mean I'll be so pretty. He's turning that around. You understand this. Don't you see it now? Christ is, his love for the church is the main thing. Husbands love your wife just like that, he says, as Christ loved the church. Husbands, yeah, we've got to get busy, yeah. That's what it says, but keep going. He not only loved his church, 
but he gave himself up for her church. Is that allegory or true? It's true. So don't mix them. These are all true statements. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her, what? Glory? Uh-oh, what is this? Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Now, this is what he says I'm going to do. I'm going to present that church to myself. That church will be glorious when that church is presented. That church will be spotless when it's presented. That church will be holy when it's presented. Is he going to actually get this done? Do you think he might succeed? When is the bride presented to Christ? Think it through. The church has just been transported to heaven in my chronology of things. The church has just been adorned with the rewards of the ceremony. Can you find a prettier wife on earth? Think of it. He has just adorned her with all the gifts of his glory. He says, now wear them. Wear them. I'm going to present you to myself in all your glory. In all your glory. What a picture that is. To present to herself. He goes on about husbands loving their wives and all these things. But each time he keeps coming to the fact Christ did this for his church. He did this for his church. He did this for his church. He's invested everything in this church. Even his whole life. He died for this church. So he can present a beautiful church to himself. A beautiful church. I don't think that's an allegory. Matter of fact, when you go back to John chapter 17... Uh, you got to see this. Uh, you really do. John 17. John 17, verse 22. This is the prayer that Jesus spoke to his Father. It's a prayer that the Father will honor and fulfill. I don't doubt that one bit. What did Jesus pray for? He said, but he had everything. He had something he wanted. John seventeen twenty two, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me from the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. He says, not just that they see my glory, but that they may share my glory. What a better picture can you think of than a bride and her bridegroom? 
where they share the bride gives to the the bridegroom gives to the bride. The bride gives to the bridegroom. They share everything alike. So what are the rewards? What are the rewards? Part of the adornment of the bride. They speak of the glory of Christ, don't they? Part of the adornment of the bride. We want to cast them before Him. He says, no, we them. So that's what we do. We just cast ourselves before Him. we got to wear them. What a better thing to do. After all, isn't that what it's all about? The bride giving herself to the bridegroom. We're just casting ourselves. The whole adornment, the whole thing. What a, what a beautiful picture this is. It's got to be funny almost. He's giving it to us. We're giving it to Him. Reciprocation. Side note. Does that sound like judgment to you? So many times in the picture of judgment, we think, well, that's going to be a rough time. He's going to punish us. Next, you're getting married in a few weeks. You're going to beat up your wife first? She won't look good in a wedding dress with black eyes, right? Can you imagine Christ before the wedding beating up his bride? No, that's not what he's been aiming for. He's going to adorn his bride. What's she adorned with? The works that she has done in his name. You see the beautiful picture of all these things together? I, I can't help but put them all together. And I say, oh, what a glorious thing we're about to become part of when we step into glory. The Lord should come for us today. This is what kicks into place. The judgment of the believer, the marriage of Christ and his church. Now, Big question. Real big question. How do I know that this event is going to take place in the order I just described? Well, let me explain this to you. I believe that the marriage of the church to the Lord occurs after the rapture. I think the whole church body has to be there. That's only logical. All right? I believe it's after the judgment. I just told you why. Because of the adornment factor. And I believe it's going to, to happen at this time because of Revelation chapter 19. Go over there with me. I've already told you earlier that I believe from chapter 4 through chapter 19 you have the tribulation period. Now some of you can easily comment on this. What is the last event of the tribulation period? The very last event... We call it by a name. All the nations of the world bring their big armies over there. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. Alright? There's evidence of that all over God's Word. We'll get to that eventually. Who changes that battle? The Lord Jesus Christ comes on that day. He comes at the end of that battle, and He wins that battle. Alright? That's just so you understand. Chapter 19 describes His coming. Now this is very important. So chronologically, the rapture has already occurred, in my thinking. The church is in heaven. The church, earth is full of tribulation. Seven years of that. What goes on at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes again for to finish off this battle to set up His millennial kingdom. What has happened to the church? 
It's been gone for seven years. It's been raptured up. It's gone during the tribulation period. This is what verse 7 says. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. For it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. I want to give you an emphasis that sometimes our English doesn't carry well enough. All the verbs in verse number 7 and 8 concerning what the bride has done are past tense verbs. They're all aorist, if you want it in the Greek. That means they're complete. He's not waiting for them to be complete. That would be future tense. He does not use future tense here. He uses aorist tense. Past, done, complete. You know what that means? When Christ comes, the bride has already been made ready. The bride has already been clothed in fine linen. The bride has already been bright and clean. She's already dressed in the righteous acts of the saints. What is that? The award ceremony. The marriage has already taken place. When Christ comes, the bride is already finished. The bride is coming with Him. Already finished. It was already given to her. That's what the text says in the Greek. It was already given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. So in verse number 9, he says, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The invitations had already been sent out. By the way, Oriental picture is all over this. They had the wedding ceremony and they followed with the supper. If he's coming for the supper, that means the service is already done. What took place during the seven year tribulation period then? The judgment of the believer, the adornment of the bride. Those things are complete when Christ comes a second time. You see it? When he comes a second time, they're already done. They're already done. The rewards have already been given. The marriage has already taken place. It's just logical to follow the order chronologically. I can't think of a better place to fit it all when I think it through chronologically. We're going to depart from this earth. If by death we go up to be with Jesus, we spend our, our time with him waiting for the resurrection of our body at the time of the rapture. If we are still alive down here, we are raptured. Those who have died are united with the body as they, uh, are, the body is resurrected. We who are alive are changed. We go up to be with the Lord forever. The whole church is now in heaven. Tribulations going on on earth, up in heaven. The church is reaping her rewards and being joined to her Savior in marriage. There's rewards and there's wedding going on in heaven during that tribulation period. When the Lord returns to the earth, He brings His bride with Him. Remember His promise? And there you shall always be with the Lord. He said, well, what happens during the millennial period? He's coming down to the earth to reign for a thousand years. Where do you think the bride's going to be? With Him. That's next week.
Right? We'll talk about that next week. Because there's so much more. It's wonderful when you start mapping it out. But I wanted to set before you the purpose of this present heaven. This present heaven is a place where we will be. When we leave this earth, we will be there. We will be there to be rewarded by our Savior. We will be there to be united with our Savior. It's going to be a glorious thing. So, with that knowledge, how are you going to live the rest of this day? How are you going to live the rest of this day? John tells us what to do. I'll just read it to you. I want you to think about this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. How are you going to live your day today? How are you going to live this week? I hope it's in anticipation. Wow, do we have something set ready for us. What a glorious thing it is. Let's talk to the Lord about it. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today, overwhelmed again, from what your word presents to us. Lord, how can we doubt your love after all this has been shown to us? Just your word says it. We didn't make this up. No way is this a manufacturing of, of our own doing. This is what you have said. And it is good and wonderful. How you love your church, our Jesus. How you love our church. Thank you. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for nurturing us. Thank you for working in our lives to mature us. Thank you for shaping us into your image. I just wish, Lord, that we were better participants in the process. I just wish that we would have that same vision for what you see and what you will accomplish and that we will be willing to participate in it and see that it comes about in our lives in the practical ways, in the practical ways too. Help us, Lord, to keep a vision on eternity, a focus on our Savior especially, and change us, we pray. Challenge us with these words today. Now that we know them, may we live them. In Jesus' name, amen.